Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, professor, chaplain, writer, and speaker, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we are going to talk about God's grace. Can we resist God's grace or not? The Christian life is anchored in God's grace, both saving grace at our conversion as well as sustaining grace that sanctifies us. And so in this podcast series, we've been thinking through how God works in our salvation. And in this episode specifically, we're going to discuss how God's grace operates on the sinner when we are converted. So Aaron, this is a debate for a lot of Christians about how God's grace works on the sinner at the time of their salvation. I know some see God's grace as something that removes obstacles and provides an opportunity, but which is really only effective if the sinner agrees to submit. In other words, God's grace can be rejected and resisted. Others believe that since the sinner always rejects God's grace, that God makes his grace irresistible. Can you explain these two positions, kind of break them down more fully, and then we can dissect them a bit as well? So the critical question that these positions are trying to answer is how effective is saving grace? So sustaining grace is the grace that the Christian, the born-again believer has that sustains them through the trials, the difficulties of life, that helps them to endure uh, as a believer. But when we talk about saving grace— This is the grace that we experience at our conversion. And your answer to this question, how effective is saving grace, is actually built off of other doctrines. For instance, your view of God's sovereignty and salvation, if you have a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation, you're going to lean one way. If you have a lesser view of God's sovereignty and salvation and you put more emphasis on the will of man, you're going to lean in the other direction. It also builds off our view of mankind. So in our first episode in this mini-series, we talked about human sinfulness, that human beings are irreparably mired in sin, that they are rebels without a cause against their benevolent creator, and that they are unable to seek after or reach out to God. If you believe that to be true, the answer the way you answer this question, how effective is saving grace, is going to put a lot of emphasis on God's work. But if, you, if you're not sure that human beings are totally incapable of seeking and reaching out to God, then you're going to lean in another direction. So I want to introduce two basic positions. And of course, as with everything in theology, whenever there's a position, there's a, very, there's a variety of sub-positions under it. Mm-hmm. But classically, the way these two sides are labeled or framed up Uh, One would be called the prevenient grace camp or group. So prevenient grace would be one perspective. I'll discuss that momentarily. And the other side of the um, coin would be what we would call effectual grace, or you could just say effective grace. And I'll I'll give uh, an explanation of, of both of these, but we'll start off with the prevenient grace view. So prevenient means grace that precedes. 
grace that comes before, in other words. So prevenient grace, think of pre, preamble, predestination, to prevent. Grace that precedes is how you can remember the term prevenient grace. Now, it's true that on one hand, both sides to this uh, on this question affirm that grace precedes salvation, that grace comes before salvation, that our salvation is anchored in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the prevenient grace doctrine advocates focus more on the idea of how effective it is. So in, in the, under the view prevenient grace, um, let, me, let me maybe say it this way, advocates of the prevenient grace doctrine would suggest that its effectiveness rests solely on the response of the sinner. God, in other words, graciously, there's where his grace is displayed, comes to the sinner, convicts them, provides them with an opportunity to repent through a preacher, makes them aware of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are now presented with an opportunity to accept or to reject the gospel. And if you were singing, for example, if you were an advocate of prevenient grace and you were singing Amazing Grace, again, to go back to this premise that it's really based, built off of your view of God and your view of man— in the, the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, it says, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So if you believe in prevenient grace, when you hear the word wretch, your view of a human, a wretch, would be something like, well, I have sinned. I'm a wretch in the sense that I've sinned, but I'm not so wretched as to be unable to respond to God's grace by my own will. So your view of wretch is, is qualified, whereas those that believe in effectual grace would say wretch is a, is a pretty despicable term, and it points out the fact that human beings in of themselves cannot, will not, never will, never have respond properly to God's grace apart from God effectively ensuring that they will respond to it. So prevenient grace, if I, if I were to summarize it and j- just lay talk, I would say, prevenient grace teaches that God is gracious in our salvation, but he, he essentially is providing us with an opportunity, and we either accept it or reject it. Now, there are three sub-views to this doctrine that have been advocated by various folks over the centuries or decades. Um, the one is that when they speak of prevenient grace, what they really mean, and this is the first sub-view, is that God does all the work graciously providing people with the opportunity to repent and believe. But in the end, the one who is being worked upon by God's grace can say yes, or they can say no. Mm-hmm. The second subview is that God also comes by his grace and he presents people with an opportunity to believe in the gospel, but that in some way in his grace, he overcomes whatever view of depravity they might have, whether it's total depravity or partial depravity, that God overcomes their depravity so that, again, they can say yes or no. So the first view, he provides them with an opportunity. It's very simple. They can say yes or no. The second view, 
He provides them with an opportunity and is also gracious enough to help them to overcome their depravity. And again, they can say yes or no. Now, before I present the third view, where these first two views get themselves into trouble is in their insistence that God is essentially an equal opportunity employer. And this is what, this is the big problem with uh, those that would oppose the various views and the doctrines of grace that I've been espousing over the last several podcasts, and that even if you end up believing that you make the choice, your will is not enslaved to sin, that you're not so depraved you can't respond, that God provides grace, but you ultimately make the decision. The problem is you're essentially presenting God, you're, you're trying to affirm that God is an equal opportunity employer, that he is fair in a human sense, in, in the human sense of the word. And both these views are problematic because they, they try to acknowledge that God has to make the first move to break down some sort of a barrier of unbelief, even, even if it's just presenting people with the opportunity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it automatically begs the question, then why does God not equally and in every situation present every man, woman, child throughout all of history from every culture, from every tribe with an equal intellect, equal parenting, equal cultural opportunities, an equally skilled preacher, an equally good translation of the Bible. And the fact of the matter is we know that just doesn't happen. So I I think that in many respects, opponents to uh, my viewpoints are trying to defend a certain fairness doctrine, and Provenient Grace is doing that as well, certain fairness doctrine, so we we, we never want to accuse God of you know working too much, we want to make sure that humans can still take some credit for their salvation, and also some personal responsibility, I suppose, for their sinfulness. But the problem is it it breaks down when you observe the world around us, and it's clear that not everybody has a quote unquote fair opportunity. So, um, that's problematic. But the third the third sub view under the provenient grace doctrine is that there is a universal grace given to all men that literally overcomes all of our depravity. And so uh, through Christ, they would argue, total depravity has been removed. So they essentially deny the abject sinfulness of human beings, and that clears the way for uh, people to receive or accept the gospel. So again, it's this... It's a bit of a house of cards. If you if you, if you deny the the objective sinfulness of humanity, then, um, or if you deny the absolute sovereignty of God over salvation, uh, many of these other doctrinal aspects are also difficult to uh, accept. Mm-hmm. So that's provenient grace. And just to clarify, provenient grace would not equal universalism, correct? Even that third view where everyone is going to be saved. They still no, get to choose? No. Um, although one would have to have a provenient grace doctrine in order to become a universalist. Okay. But being a universalist isn't the necessary byproduct of believing in a doctrine of provenient grace. Okay. Yeah. So then provenient grace advocates, where do they place their faith? So when we think of the um, the various elements of conversion, and there's there's many aspects to uh, conversion, so we have we have words in the Bible like election and predestination, and we have justification, and we have regeneration, and we have 
justification, sanctification, and it's like how how do all these how are all these ordered? Now, obviously, predestined and ele- predestination or elects uh, election takes place before the creation of the world. But in mm-hmm. space and time, if you could say the moment of your salvation, like where would you where do you put regeneration as opposed to faith, or where do you put God's grace as opposed to faith or regeneration? Mm-hmm. And under this view, it so first of all, I don't want to get too technical here, but uh, technically speaking, it's all happening at the same time. But logically, advocates of provenient grace would believe that faith precedes regeneration, logically. So one of their own will puts their faith in the message of the gospel that they've mm-hmm. heard, and then God, based upon that act of faith, regenerates them. They, they're born again. They're spiritually uh, renewed. And the effectual uh, grace position would say, no, no, no. In order to put one's faith in the gospel, one first has to be logically regenerated. Mm -hmm. So God comes in, he ignites the fire, so to speak. Mm -hmm. He regenerates, you're born again. And then one then is gifted faith, saving faith by God. Now, again, that's happening in space and time instantaneously. But logically, faith preceding regeneration is the provenient grace conclusion. Regeneration preceding faith is the effectual grace position. Now, in order to hold to a provenient grace position, you must believe the following things. You must believe that sinful man can muster up some willingness from within himself to put their faith in God, to respond to God's grace and put their faith in the message of the cross. You must believe there is a capacity, an innate capacity in a human being to uh, have some openness or interest in the gospel or to at least affirm that God removes the barriers to enable that to happen and that one has some softness towards God. Now, I know that as, as Christians, and I assume that most people listening to our podcast are Christians. We we know that we're sinners, mm-hmm. but it's interesting if you talk to Christians within the Christian church. There's actually different degrees to which they think they're sinners. Mm-hmm. So we all say we're sinners, but when you begin to question people, what does that sinfulness look like? How does it express itself? How does it manifest itself? Many Christians believe that even before they were saved they were born again, they experienced God's saving grace, that they had a certain propensity towards righteousness or softness towards the things of God. Maybe they were spiritual people. Maybe they were more charitable than the average non-Christian was. Maybe they were uh, clean living. You know, they, they, they paid their taxes. They didn't have sex outside of marriage. They don't lie, gossip, and steal. They're clean living people. And they sort of compare themselves to you know, the serial killer, the murderer, the the drug addict, or the the serial adulterer. And they say, well, I know I'm a sinner, mm-hmm. but deep down they don't really understand how sin has affected them to their core. Mm-hmm. So I want to read some scriptures from the Word of God that help us to be reminded of how deeply sinful we are. And this, this isn't intended to depress you because these issues have been resolved in Christ if you're a believer. But we need to kind of step back and think, well, who was I apart from Christ? Before I encountered the Lord Jesus Christ's saving grace, 
what was my will? Like, how? What was my bent? And let's let's start in Isaiah sixty four seven. Isaiah sixty four seven. I've picked some verses that are very categorical. They don't require a PhD in biblical exegesis to understand. There's, mm-hmm. We're not talking about passages loaded up with metaphor or poetry or apocalyptic uh, visionary language. These are pretty clear cut, pretty straightforward passages from God's word. And listen to what it says in in Isaiah uh, 64, 7. There is no one who calls upon your name. Notice the language, no one. Goes on to say, who rouses himself to take hold of you. That's a word relating to the word will. In other words, there's no one who from within themselves chooses Mm -hmm. to seek God. So reading it from the beginning, there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us to melt in the hand of our iniquities, which is another word for sin. So that's pretty straightforward. Human beings in of themselves do not rouse themselves. They do not, do not work up the energy or the interest from their own will, from their own mind, from their own psyche, from their own soul, whatever word you want to use to refer to your immaterial aspect. It just doesn't happen that way. Paul repeats that theology in Romans chapter 3, verse 11. It says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. No one. No one is mentioned twice there. Romans 9, 6. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's interesting that we we separate will and work. Mm-hmm. And we're very uncomfortable saying to someone, well, you can save yourself by your own work, mm-hmm. but somehow many Christians are comfortable saying, but I can save myself or be saved by my will. And what we need to understand is that the will and our work are inextricably linked, and we, we are not saved by works, and we're not saved by our own wills either. Both our work and our will have been affected yes. catastrophically by sin. So my will, in and of my own humanity, apart from the saving work of God, will always choose evil over good. Now, some will counter that and say, but I have literally seen godless people who still aren't Christians do good deeds. Well, Isaiah also has something to say about that. They're filthy rags. Even our good deeds are saturated by, laced by sin, and we get no credit for them. There's always poison in the soup. Uh, There's always uh, sin in our good deeds. Mm -hmm. And we often like to take credit for it. Unbelievers are infamous for this. I'll give money to a charity, put my name in the hospitals, plaques on the wall. You go into our own hospital here in Windsor, plaques all the way down the entrance of people that have given money. That's not true benevolence. That's personal advertising. Hmm. And of course, it's all categorized, right? Because instead of the widow and the two mites, you're categorized by how wealthy you are. And I've always found those boards disturbing. Uh, When we give our money to the work of the ministry as a church, we don't expect our name to ever be published anywhere. And yet even charitable deeds, even good deeds by lost people, they want to be recognized for it. And this is just one example of many that proves that even our good deeds are like filthy rags. So we don't seek after God. We do not rouse ourselves. Our salvation does not depend on human will, thank God, or human work, exertion, but on God's grace. Mm -hmm. This goes back to the episode we did on um, the depravity of humanity and how it infects so much more. So I think 
even reading through some history, there was a time when the church separated out the will, somehow thinking that the will of man was protected from total depravity. And I think it was the reformers that kind of brought it back to say, no, we are completely depraved. So if the prevenient grace uh, camp is opposed then, or the, the contrast to that is effectual grace, where does effectual grace find faith? So uh, effectual ga- grace is is predicated, again, on the sovereignty of God, a high view of God's sovereignty, and it's also predicated. In other words, it's founded on, it's based on the belief that mankind never will, never has, ever, 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 ever once in all of human history responded to grace in order to bring about salvation apart from the regenerative work of Christ in our lives. That grace leads, it's effective, it leads to regeneration, Mm -hmm. and regeneration leads to faith. Now, again, it happens all at once. It's instantaneous. It's not like, well, one hour I was regenerated, and 30 minutes later, I finally exercised saving faith. It's happening instantaneously. But if we think of it in terms of its logical order, I believe that the Bible presents us with the notion that regeneration comes before faith. So regeneration is, like where's grace in that? Regeneration is God's grace manifested in space and time to us in our salvation. So God graciously regenerates, and then we're enabled to exercise faith. Here's the thing. We we tend to think about these issues in light of our own experience. And many of us, myself included, can think back to a specific point in time when I remember hearing the gospel and feeling convicted by it, and I remember being in a discussion with someone about the gospel and understanding it, and then I felt like a light was turned on in my head. I now know that's the doctrine of regeneration, and I repented of my sins and put my faith in Christ. So we we think of it experientially. Well, this is my story. This is my testimony. Many times when people share their testimonies, it's about really their experience. There's nothing wrong with analyzing your your experience, but experience is not the means of determining our theology. Our, our, our experiences need to be interpreted in light of our theology. And when people talk, when people hear the language effectual grace, mm-hmm. or some would call it irresistible grace, I'll talk more about that momentarily, but I, I prefer the term effectual grace, they think, well, that sounds like we're being forced. So what you're saying, Pastor Rock, is that we're being forced to receive God's grace. We're being manipulated. It's kind of like an arranged marriage. I had no say in it. Well, in marriage, you have two options. You can talk, date, interact with, quote unquote, choose your spouse, or someone can choose your spouse for you. But at the end, And at the end of the day, using either of those means, you can end up as a married person. So it's true you can have an arranged marriage or you can have an unarranged marriage. But in salvation, unarranged marriages never happen. If we leave it to the individual to choose God, to become the bride, to choose the groom, it will never happen, ever. The bride is wed to the groom by God's grace alone. The bride is invited by the groom. The bride is courted by the the groom. The bride is regenerated by the groom. The bride is brought into the presence of the groom by the groom. So we're not talking about 
when we talk about effectual grace, we're not talking about something that's forced. We're not talking about something that's manipulated. It's not contrary to your lived experience. Yes, as God is working behind the scenes in your life, you're thinking, you're aware of what you're hearing, you're processing, you're experiencing God's convicting grace and renewing work. And once this grace is at work, this is important, once this grace is at work in you, experientially speaking, that grace will lead you willingly to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So experientially, you'll feel as though you are willingly putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not we're not suggesting some doctrine of the robotic Christian that just suddenly is walking down the street and a lightning bolt hits them from heaven and they're converted. Now, God's grace will work in your mind, in your heart, in your will. So some people call this irresistible. The reason why it's maybe not the, the best language, although it's probably the most prominent, is it does sound a little bit forced. But here's the other problem to that uh, uh, term. Let me get there in a moment. I, I prefer to call it effectual grace because what we're emphasizing there is that God and his sovereign plan as he comes at you with saving grace will accomplish the salvation that he has designed for you. So let's just outline how this works. So we go right back to Genesis 1 and 2. God creates a beautiful world. There's the tree. We have freedom, but we're not allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lest we die, Adam and Eve. In a sense, we're free. They were free. Their wills were not in bondage to sin at this point. If you want to import language from philosophy and say they had a free will at the time, fine, have at it. It's not language from the text, but if you want to use that language, whatever. So Adam and Eve are free from sin. Then the fall happens, and they're in bondage, and they enslave their whole offspring. This is why the statistics on sinfulness are impressive, 100%. Like everybody sins because we're all from and in Adam and Eve. We're not blank slates like Islam teaches. We're not born free of sin. Islam teaches that. We are born in sin. We are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. At some point in time, those of us that know our believers uh, have come to salvation. God has graciously impacted our lives. He's, we've heard the gospel. We've, we've, we've repented. All of that. We're Christians. Now our wills have been freed from sin. We're now in Christ. The freedom and life of Christ is in us. And if you want to, again, draw language from philosophy, okay, one could say now our wills have been freed with a D. F-R-E-E-D. We have freed wills. So let's go back to this term irresistible. So I just kind of want to make sure people understood that that, that process. Um in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sins. And I'd like to unpack that passage a little bit more in, in a minute or two. But it talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sins. So dead people don't regenerate themselves. They don't revive themselves. They don't crawl out of graves. You, you don't drive by your local cemetery and see the earth pulsating and moving as dead people are working their way out of the grave. Never happens. Dead people stay dead. The only time dead people come to life is through the resurrecting power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're dead in our trespasses and, and our sins. So people might talk about, um, people might be tempted, 
especially those of the Provenient Grace camp, to say, no, like, I know that I, I, I can resist God's grace and that I, um, you know, I, I deny the doctrine of uh, irresistible grace. Well, hear this. This is really important. Uh, irresistible grace, that doctrine, as I understand it, doesn't mean that we cannot resist God. You're like, well, that sounds contradictory. Well, let me say it again, just so you heard me right. Irresistible grace doesn't mean that we cannot resist God. Rather, it's predicated on the belief that we always resist God. We always resist God. Human beings always, always, always resist God. And therefore, God's effectual grace is effective because it overcomes that which we will inevitably and necessarily 100% of the time resist. You see where I'm really highlighting God in the equation and reducing man's contribution to it. That's what I'm essentially doing. I want people to have higher than high thoughts about God and lower than low thoughts about mankind's efforts and contributions apart from God's grace. And then he gets absolutely all of the glory. Irresistible grace doesn't mean then that we come kicking and screaming to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because grace, as it is operating in our lives, softens us. Mm -hmm. Grace awakens us to our sinfulness. It, it makes us aware of how sinful we are, and it regenerates us in order that we might exercise saving faith. So under the view, effectual grace, or some would call it irresistible grace, we're actually presenting to people not a tyrannical view of God who's just out there picking and choosing and zapping people with lightning bolts and making them believe. We're actually helping people to understand how soft-hearted, how loving, and how gracious God is, and that God is enabling faith. He's enabling belief. He's softening us. He's, he's convicting us. He's making us aware of our own sin. So again, it doesn't mean we're robots, but that God works in such a way in our lives that in our minds we're comprehending the message of the gospel. We're believing in the message of the gospel. We're trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So by grace, we come to Christ, and if you want to think of it theologically, logically, regeneration precedes our ability to respond to God's grace by faith. So I would say, Chris, that um, when I think about those that would resist this doctrine, when I think about those that would prefer to think of God as sending a letter, an invitation to a party, you can RSVP, yes or no, when they think of the gospel more that way, and they resist the idea that God pursues us, seeks us out, is relentless, softens us, enables us to believe, regenerates us so that we can even have faith. I think about resistance to that doctrine. It usually, if not always, is based upon an inaccurate view of what salvation is. And here's how it works. We often perceive of salvation as our experience. It's our experience. So I believed, I was transformed, I walked the aisle at a Billy Graham crusade, I chose, I repented. 
my testimony essentially is about me and what, yeah, it recognizes God's work, but the idea of salvation is about an experiential encounter with God. That's how people often perceive of it. Mm-hmm. But it's better to think of our salvation as a declaration. The gospel is a declaration. It's an announcement from God that we've been made new. And then that declaration or that announcement leads to various experiences with God, including the blessing of his life in us. So instead of thinking of our salvation as there was a point in time and I was convicted of my sin, I was overwhelmed by it, someone presented the gospel to me, I thought about it, it made sense, I was tired of drinking, smoking, cheating, stealing, lying, murdering, whatever it might be, and I chose to put my faith in Christ, in in space and time you're experiencing those things, but it's better to think of the gospel as a declaration or announcement from God that you've been made new, that he has allowed his, uh, he, he has used grace as an operative tool to actually bring about change and regeneration uh, in your life. Hmm. That's good. I think that'll take some listening to unpack for people, but can we go back to Ephesians too? Because I know you want to spend some time there understanding more about what that passage has to say to this idea. So Ephesians chapter two, this is a great passage for people to study who really want to understand the way God works, who want to understand the, the way salvation happens and who who want to understand more about themselves apart from Christ. So let me, let me kind of read, I'm going to read 10 verses and I, I want to dissect them for our listeners. Many of you are already familiar with this passage. I'm sure you've studied it in detail, but in this context, maybe there'll be some things that pop out at you in in a new and fresh way. Mm -hmm. So here's how this passage begins. It makes a declaration about life before Christ. It says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So a few things there. A very, very low view of human beings apart from Christ. He's speaking to Christians. Before salvation, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We acted like the rest of mankind. And there's a, there's a there's a statement here about the fact that all mankind fall into this same boat. So by nature, nobody is born with a moral leg up over the next guy. We're all born sin, sinful. We act out of the, the passions of our flesh and our mind. So we're we're driven by urges towards sexual promiscuity, towards hatred, towards bitterness, towards covetousness, and everyone is like that. And that state is a state of spiritual deadness toward God. Then we have a disjunctive at the beginning of verse 4, which disjoins, which takes us in a new direction, which disjoins the thoughts of verses 1 to 3 with what is going to follow. And it starts like this, but, but, it's going to take us in a new direction now. You've heard God's damning indictment of human nature apart from Christ, but God, and now God becomes the mover. So we're not the mover, we're not the initiator, 
We're not the one willing ourselves into salvation. God now becomes the central uh, effector of the actions of the rest of the passage. But God, and first of all, before we learn about what God does, we learn something about the character of God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. By the way, never preach this stuff without emphasizing the mercy and love of God. Many of our opponents will falsely say, well, you don't have, a, you don't believe God is loving? Actually, we, we very much believe God is loving. So when we talk about what are often called the doctrines of grace, they're called the do- doctrines of grace for a reason, because God is loving and gracious. The doctrines of grace accentuate the love of God to a greater degree than free will theology, which emphasizes the affections of man toward God, which is false doctrine, because by nature, we don't have that. So God is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when, notice that the timing of this, so he's going to talk about our salvation. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, so we didn't take the first step, we didn't start to open the casket lid, we didn't take a few steps towards God, we were still dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in verse five there, where it says, by grace you have been saved, that's the effectual grace. That's what we're calling effectual grace. It's unmerited, undeserved, unsought after, undesirable grace that is given to the dead person, the spiritually dead person, which enables them to be made alive. So grace then made alive, that's regeneration. So we've been regenerated by God's grace, and then we we are uh, brought into the presence of God. We're seated with him in the, in the, in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages, we, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So there we have it. The mission of God is the glory of God. Why does God save us? He saves us in order that he gets the credit Not so you get the credit. Stop taking credit for your salvation, free willers. Stop taking credit for your salvation, provenient gracers. You do nothing. You contribute nothing. God works graciously behind the scenes in you to enable you to think, to enable you to hear, to enable you to process, to enable you to have faith. It's all him working behind the scenes. Now you know this. This increases your affection for God. This actually helps your view of God's love to blossom in your own mind. The less you take credit for your salvation and the more you attribute it to God, the more love you have for God, the more affection you have for God as a Christian because you realize, wow, like I knew some things were happening, but this is like an extra dose of awesomeness Mm -hmm. as you think about God's work uh, in your life even before you looked his direction. And then we have this famous declaration, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. So faith is the instrument. It's the instrument. But again, uh, the, the, the human contribution isn't faith in response to God's grace, but God, God then renders into salvation. Grace and faith are, in fact, a gift. In fact, it says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So the gift, 
It's like, well, is that the grace or the faith? Some would say, oh, it's the grace. But actually, the grace and the faith are linked. Grace and faith is the gift given to us by God. So even your saving faith is a gift from God because God has regenerated you. He's made you alive in Christ to enable you to exercise faith. And then set in the reverse, so we, we learn that it's from God, it's the kindness of God towards us, but set in the reverse, which the Bible often does, it says things positively and negatively. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works. Remember late earlier on we referenced a passage where works and will are linked. Not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're dead. Christ works in our lives. We're made alive in Christ. He grants us grace and faith. He gets the glory, and we get a job description. And our job description is then to do good works. I don't know why this is so confusing, but many people are confused. Like, what's the place of good works in the life of a Christian? Well, very simply, it certainly is not a lead-up to salvation. Mm -hmm. It is the necessary byproduct and the inevitable byproduct of a transformed life. If God has truly transformed you, you're going to pursue good works. You're going to think differently. You're going to act differently. You're going to spend differently. You're going to talk differently. You're going to work differently. You're going to have sex differently. Your life will be a living reflection of God's grace and work in your life. And God has prepared that beforehand. So when the Bible talks about walking in Christ, that's doing good works for him. See? Mm -hmm. So to summarize, everybody believes that God is gracious and that grace is part of salvation. Some believe that God graciously presents us with an opportunity. His grace precedes our faith, our salvation, and we get to choose if we're going to accept or we're going to reject. And experientially, that seems like the way it works. But when we go deep into the Word of God, we actually discover the truth. And the truth is what we could call effectual grace. That's not how it works. This is how it works. God works in our lives to effect a change. He makes us alive. He, he, we're revived from our spiritual deadness. We're regenerated. When we are thinking, processing, feeling, being softened to things of God, it's all God doing that in our lives behind the scenes. Uh, we are born again uh, in Christ. We are new creatures in Christ, and then we are to live out the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ in space and time until he comes and takes us home. Mm -hmm. And this is how it all works. And hopefully this brings clarity to people because it's it's really, really important to uh, get to a point in your life, if you want to increase your worship life, maybe, you're a little, maybe your worship's a little bland. Uh, you want to increase your worship life. Maybe you've lost a bit of your affection for God. It's really, really important you elevate God's work. And the more you reflect upon God's grace in your life, the more it'll do just that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is a good analogy, and so feel free to totally shoot it down. Um, someone has said in the past, you know, you didn't choose when you were born, right? Somebody else made the decision and you were born as a result. Would it be fair to say in a similar way to how we breathe, but God was the one who breathed life into us, that it's we exercise faith, but the fact that we can exercise it because he gave us the gift in the first place? Yeah, in fact, the first analogy is used 
in Jesus' discussion with um, Nicodemus that we must be born again. So it's it's a biblical analogy or illustration that think about being born again. It's interesting. You must be born again. You must be born again. When I was a kid, preachers would preach that you must be born again. But then they would somehow imply that you got to choose. You got to you have to make the first step. You got to walk the aisle. You got to raise your hand. You got to pray the prayer, whatever it might be. Like, yeah, but I didn't choose to be born the first time. So it says I must be born again. I can't be born again the second time either. It's not of my will. It's of the will of the Father. And so born again language, I think we've, in recent generations, maybe it was stigmatized. I don't hear preachers using born again language anymore. I'd like to see it revived in our sermons because it's biblical language. You must be born again. And and intrinsic to that that declaration is the idea that there is someone behind the scenes, a father, a heavenly father in this situation that is enabling us to be born again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, any final thoughts as we wrap up this episode? So I want to land the plane on the same runway where we've landed the last three episodes. Mm-hmm. And that is, I want to beseech you. I want to call you to consider these thoughts, to consider these scriptural passages, to consider these doctrines rationally, not to allow your your emotions or your predispositions, the stigma that may have previously been attached to these doctrines to cause you to reject them. So think about them. Mm-hmm. But do not, under any circumstances, if you've embraced them, become an ungracious person. There's nothing more ironic than someone who has a high view of God's grace and salvation who's an ungracious person frankly idiot. Mm-hmm. And I meet many I've met many like that over the years who become ungracious, who become arrogant, who become cocky. That's not where these doctrines are supposed to lead. That's just symptomatic of your own sinfulness. Mm-hmm. These doctrines are supposed to drive us towards worship, drive us to pray for the lost. Keep in mind that we're learning about how God works behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But we don't know who God has set his sights on. So we preach hard we pray hard, we evangelize hard, mm-hmm. we hope for the best, we do not lose hope, we do not despair, we don't stop evangelizing our loved ones, we we continue to preach the gospel, we continue in obedience. This is part of our good works, by the way. Mm-hmm. This is part of the application of Ephesians 2.10, for good works, which God has prepared, that we should walk in them. Part of walking in the grace of God is preaching the gospel to all men. It's calling people to faith in Christ. We do that. But behind the scenes, there's a holy relaxation because we know that we are God's instruments, but God is ultimately the one that brings about salvation. And if you perhaps at times struggle with the assurance of your own salvation, keep in mind the more you believe that God is the one that caused your salvation, that brought about your salvation, the more those thoughts flee. I'll leave you with Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. For he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It's not the subjunctive there. It's not, oh, he might, he may. If he gets around to it, we don't really know. It's will. That's indicative of reality. He will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, and we're thankful for that. So be gracious, uh, worship hard, and hope that God will use you to bring about a transformational work in the lives of those around you. 
Good word. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you for taking us through this mini series. And um, if you're just tuning in now today, there are a few other episodes before that you can go back and check out. There's one, and there's one more coming. And there's one more coming. By now, you may have put the pieces together. <laughs> We're really thankful, though, that you've tuned in. Uh, we encourage you to download this podcast or subscribe, rather, on the various platforms that we are on, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, the PursuitofGlory.org, and any places that you uh, can access podcasts. And we hope you'll share that out as well and bless others with it. And that you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.